Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. I'm going to teach on healing tonight. And I'm going a different direction than usual, a little bit more on the apologetic side, and I'll tell you why here in a second. There are, uh, I guess what I would call different streams of truth. Now, I don't mean that in the New Age sense. The New Age sense would be like, well, there's truth in all religions, all belief systems, you know, just because uh, there are different roads and different paths. They all lead to the same mountaintop. That's not what I'm talking at all. That's nonsense. That, because there are paths that will take you straight to hell. We know that, right? What I mean is when I say streams of truth, I mean there are ministries and there are individuals, uh, ministers, writers, speakers who have got some great insight into the character of God, the person of God, doctrine, things that we can feed on. Not everything we read or listen to has to come from Tulsa. Doesn't have to come from Rama. Doesn't have to come from Copeland. Doesn't have to come from Keith Moore. Now, what I'm going to saturate myself with is stuff that's going to build my faith, feed my faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to move mountains, to gain, get, have the victory and everything else. So this is going to be the, the, my staple diet is going to be faith-feeding stuff. I mean, a staple diet is the Word of God. But in terms of people who are speaking on the Word of God, I'm going to listen to trusted, proven ministers who I know are going to feed my faith, not cast doubt on it. But... Uh, you know, if for instance, I love, as you know, I love C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis is a great, uh, he had some tremendous, tremendous insight into uh, the, what faith means, what the Christian character is. Uh, you know, he's uh, a giant uh, among Christian authors, but not what I would call a faith guy like you and I understand faith. I'm not going to read Lewis to figure out how to get my healing, okay? But I'm going to read Lewis. Love Ravi Zacharias. You know how much I love Ravi Zacharias. One of the, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, defender of the faith uh, in, in action uh, today. Uh, and not only that, he's raising up a good team. You know, as he gets older and, and he's involving some of these great uh, men and women that he's trained. But I'm not going to go to him uh, if, I need to be, if I need to be encouraged about uh, God's plan for my provision or for my healing, right? Because he's got a little bit different background. There, there are excellent books and sermons, and they're down through the ages. I'm not just talking about people who are active right now in a wide range of issues and subjects. And these authors and ministers, they come from different traditions and different backgrounds, and these traditions and backgrounds are going to be manifested in their writings and their ministry. And, and these, these traditions and backgrounds mean they have a certain degree of prejudice towards certain doctrines and against others. And uh, if you or anybody else felt like bothering uh, doing a study, you would find it would not be hard to find uh, hard at all to find areas where they disagree with each other. It doesn't mean they're all in damnable heresy. What do I? What am I saying all this for? I'm saying if the only church in St. Joseph, Illinois, was the Methodist Church, I would go to the Methodist Church. There are things that they don't believe and practice uh, that I wish they did. Uh, but it's important for me to assemble with believers. But as long as there is a community of like-minded believers to fellowship and agree with, that's where I'm going to go. 
I'm going to go to where a, my faith is going to be fed and encouraged. And I'm glad I have that option. But I'm not saying, well, the Methodists, they don't believe what we believe about healing, so they're going to hell. No, they're not. Not for that. Okay, I'm not saying everybody in the Methodist church is going to heaven. God knows. Uh, at least, uh, I didn't mean it like that. I, lean, I mean, literally, God is the one who knows. You know, God knows I'm not saying they're all going to heaven. That's not what I meant by that. And don't let a uh, copy of this message fall into Gene Turner's hands, okay? But let me give an example. I mean, they disagree with each other. Take a guy like R.C. Sproul, great scholar, uh, has made great contributions to Christian literature and explaining the scriptures. Very, very uh, towering Christian intellect, great apologist. But he believes in infant baptism, believed in inter- infant baptism. And a number of his colleagues would disagree with him on that, not just us. Doesn't mean, well, we can't ever read anything by Sproul. So we can read things by people who are coming from other streams because they have great insight on things. But we got to be careful when we come across something from an author we respect or a minister that we respect that challenges us. And I bring all this up because every now and then you do come across an article like one that was recently sent to me. And it's a good article. It presents some good challenges to those of us who specifically, in this case, embrace the message of healing. And I'm going to share it with you, or a good chunk of it tonight. And along the way, I'm going to answer some of the questions and challenges it raises. Uh, again, we've got to be careful. You don't want, I, I think, again, our goal when we are reading and when we are feeding should be, do, should be to ingest things that are going to build us up make us spiritually strong and healthy. On the other hand, if we believe that this stuff is the word of God, we have to also believe that it will withstand scrutiny. If people have questions, if this stuff is true, then there are answers. Now, we might not have the answer at the tip of our fingers, uh, but we have to believe those answers are there, can be dug for, can be found. And we just can't be afraid to ask them. So, and this is obviously, this is one article. It's not an exhaustive list of every challenge to the healing message. Uh, But I think you'll find yourself encouraged because when you hear some of these challenges, you'll probably at least at first say, oh yeah, what about that? And then you'll realize, oh yeah, that about that. Okay. So uh, there's an introductory paragraph that I'll I'll skip to save time. And then it says this. And and the question is, the title of this article is, is it always God's will to heal? And in this introduction, he says, this is a question that every Christian at some point is probably going to have to wrestle with because everybody is going to be touched by sickness, whether in their own body or in the body of a loved one. I agree with that premise. All right. First, the author says, we must recognize that God often claims to be the ultimate cause for sickness in the Bible. In response to Moses' unwillingness to return to Egypt as his spokesman, God said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And that's Exodus 4.11. We'll look at it here in a minute. Again, at the end of Deuteronomy, God says that he brings both life and death. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy chapter chapter 32. We'll read that again later as well. And God grants Hannah's request for a child. After God grants Hannah's request for a child, she praises him saying, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. 
I don't have a good answer for that part, so let's go to the second part. I'm kidding. We're going to take these one by one. In Moses' case, it's pretty simple. You remember this, don't you? This is when God is speaking to him, and he tells this is their first encounter, and he says, you are going to go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, uh, let my people go. And, God, and Moses says, but I can't. I have, and, and many people believe he had a speech impediment. He says, well, let's just read that in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, and we will begin in verse 10, I think. Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made the man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. Verse 13, he says, But he said, O oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever, whoever else you may send. Now, we actually covered this a few years ago. And I think the King James and New King James have it rendered better. This guy, what he quoted out of the NIV, where it says, Who ma- it says who's made man's mouth? Who makes him deaf or blind or dumb or seeing? It's better rendered, who makes the deaf, the blind, the dumb? What God is saying is not, I pick and choose who I'm going to blind I pick and choose who I'm going to rob of hearing and speech. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, who made man? You did, God. You're the creator of mankind. Okay, so there's a blind man over here. Did I make him? Well, you made mankind. He's a man, so yeah. God is basically saying, I am the one. I am the inventor. I am the author of life. If I tell you to go and there's something wrong with you, I can fix that. If I'm telling you, if, if, if part of my command to you is you go and speak to Pharaoh, and your concern is, love to you, Lord, but I can't speak, you need to trust that my command is going to make speech possible for you. I 100% personally am convinced that what Moses did here was missed his opportunity for a healing or for a, a, a a repair of his uh, faculty of speech there, whether it was a stutter or, whether, or a lisp or whatever it was. Uh, he was very insecure about it, and God was adamant. He says, you know, I'm the one who made mankind. I can surely fix mankind. I can fix anything that's wrong with you. Now, you just go. And what's Moses' response? Just let somebody else do it. And God says, no, I'm still going to send you, but I'll tell you what, Aaron, your brother, he can do the talking. And I believe Moses missed his opportunity there. He's saying, well, let me, let's, go, let's don't dwell on that. I, I think I've covered that well enough, and I want to move on to Deuteronomy chapter 32, because that's a toughie. And the author of this article, let me read it in a little more context in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I love Deuteronomy. This is Moses' uh, swan song, as it were. He's sending the uh, children of Israel into the land of promise. And uh, we're getting toward the end of it here. And we'll pick it up in uh, verse 36. We could read this whole chapter. It would give you even more, <clears throat> more context. But we'll pick it up in 36. Where it says, For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them arise and help you. And be your refuge. 
Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Now the author treats verse 39 there, the author of this article, like it's a standalone doctrinal statement about the character of God. When in fact what God is doing is simply uh, uh, contrasting himself with the other gods of the land that that the nations around his people have uh, served and that will seduce the children of Israel in the near future. And he's saying, once I make up my mind to do something, there is not a God, there is not a belief in the world that can stop me because all these other gods are not gods at all. And you're going to put all your trust in these gods and then you call out to me when your power's gone and then you want to turn to me, I'm going to say, no, turn to these ones that you've already offered everything to. See how fast they help you. I am above all of this. Ultimate power is mine. He's not saying, I am God, and therefore, I'll kill whenever I want to kill, and I'll make alive whenever I want to make alive, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. I just do it because I'm God. That's not what he's saying at all. Much has been made in the past. Uh, if we talk about the issue of language, there are scholars who have, and, and they're, you know, they've, more right to say it than I do. I'm not a language scholar. Uh, but they say, I have heard, and I'll take their word for it, that there's no real permissive sense in the Hebrew language. And uh, again, I don't know entirely how accurate that is, but essentially what they're saying is that God doesn't distribute or cause sickness uh, per se or, or calamity or anything else, but that he simply removes his protection and allows these things. And that certainly does fit with my worldview, that we live in a world that is sin-sick, and this sin-sickness infects everything, our environment, our bodies, our relationships, uh, and it's going to result in sickness, and that God himself keeps us safe, heals us from these things. But if, if we act in a way where we're rejecting him, and he removes his protection, uh, that in a sense, you know, the Hebrews would render that, I will cause it. Now... I'll buy that, okay? But it's really not the issue. I'll tell you what the issue is here in a second. But before I get there, I want to look at Hannah's song. In 1 Samuel, chapter 2, this is, you know, Hannah has prayed. She's been barren and she's prayed. And God has answered her prayer. And in verse 6, we'll pick it up. Um, where am I? Chapter 2, I was in the wrong chapter. The Lord kills and makes alive. Chapter 2, verse 6. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. We can stop there and we know what's happened. She is rejoicing because God has turned her situation around. But this is Hannah's perspective, not necessarily God's. The scripture accurately records the words of men and women down through the centuries. But what these men and women are saying is not always the word of God. This is the true word of God in that it accurately tells us what Hannah said. But she's sharing her heart. Look, 
What's she say right after what this guy quotes? The Lord sets the pillars of the earth, sets the earth on its pillars. Now, are we supposed to make a doctrinal stance out of that? I don't care what science has shown us. I don't care what space photos have shown us. The earth sets on pillars. It's poetic expression here, okay, that the Lord has established the earth. And she's simply, again, acknowledging his power and his sovereignty, that nothing is, is going to stand in the way of his plan for blessing her in this case. She's considering herself the low one that God has raised up and that her adversary, uh, uh, by contrast, has been brought down. It's, what bugs me is the truth of this statement is the same one as Deuteronomy. God is all-powerful. The statement is not Everything is the way it is, and everyone is the way they are, because that is how God has made it. That reduces a sovereign God to a capricious God or an arbitrary God. God is all-powerful. He can do everything. Therefore, everything is exactly the way God wills it to be. That's not what these passages are saying. It's saying God can do everything anything and once he makes up his mind to do something you can't stop him but does that mean he really does kill that he really does make sick it does and that's the bad news but the good news is way way bigger there are a number of times you can see them if you've heard them you can probably remember them where god threatens calamity of one kind or another a uh, a plague or a uh, Famine and, uh, and even sickness. And the issue is not does sickness come directly from the hand of God or does God allow it? That's not the issue. The issue is, the question we really need to answer is under what circumstances does God initiate it or allow it, whichever one it is? Under what circumstances does God ever allow or initiate calamity or sickness in the lives of man? And it is invariably in the context of judgment. And it is invariably in the Old Testament. We don't throw out the Old Testament. There's a lesson here. There is sickness. There is sickness named among believers in the New Testament. Okay? But it is never attributed to God. If I'm wrong about that, let me know. I I could not find or, or think of one. This is the importance of reading the whole Bible and understanding the the plan of redemption and the power of faith and the importance of covenant relationship. The message of the Old Testament, remember this. This is why we were going through the Bible so we could see all of this. The message of the Old Testament was, I am a God who loves you and I desire to bless you and make you stand out among the nations as a strong and blessed people. All you have to do is keep my law, my commandments. If you don't, Calamity will come. Sickness and lack will come. But my commandments are not burdensome. I'm setting before you life and death. So choose life. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Would you, would you, I know that's a, that's a very short version, but would you agree that that's essentially what God said? And we know how it worked out, right? They ultimately always chose to disobey. And God knew they would. But it showed them and it showed us that because of the sin nature, we are unable 
to hold up our end of this thing. We can't keep his commandments, not consistently. If we are going to qualify for the covenant promises, which we see rehearsed in Deuteronomy, by the way, it's going to have to come some other way. It's not going to come because of our obedience to the law, because we can't keep it. Back to the article. Next paragraph says this. This is not only true in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles did not heal everyone they came into contact with. Jesus himself only healed one man from among the multitude of invalids at the pool of Bethesda. That's John chapter 5. Likewise, he did not heal people in his hometown of Nazareth because they rejected him. (laughs) It cannot be said, however, that Jesus' healing was dependent on the faith of those whom he chose to heal, although there is a close connection, for the following reasons. First, those whom Jesus raised from the dead could not exercise faith. In the, faith, in the case of the widow of Nain, Jesus simply had compassion on her and her son. Their faith, or lack thereof, is not even mentioned. Second, Jesus healed those who obviously did not have faith. The prime example, oh, this is, boy, you can probably see steam coming out of my ears. The prime example of this is when he cleansed the ten lepers in Luke 17. Only one of the lepers returned to give thanks to Jesus, thereby showing his faith. The other nine did not even have the decency to thank the one who healed them. This paragraph is hands down the weakest part of this article. The pool of Bethesda, for one thing, is absolutely an exception and not the rule when it comes to Jesus' healing ministry. I did a message on that a, a number of months ago. But I want you to, we, we, if we look at that and say, okay, well, this must be, this is how we interpret Jesus' healing ministry. It's clearly the sovereign work of God because Jesus stepped over all these other invalids laying around the pool to get to this one guy to ask him if he wanted to be made well. And he made him well. And then he left. Why didn't he heal everybody there? I don't know. What it does tell me is, it tells me this, that if God desires to heal somebody who's not seeking him, who's not coming to him in faith, God can. I, I absolutely believe that. That God can and does heal people from time to time, whether they have faith or not. That's never been the question for me. The question for me is, if I have faith and I'm standing on a promise, does God have the option not to heal me? Because I don't think he does. Yeah, he healed that one guy at the pool of Bethesda, but what about the multitudes? How many of them did he heal? All. All. They brought him the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute. They brought him the demon-possessed, and he healed them all. The lepers did exhibit faith because he didn't just go up to them and heal them randomly. They called out to him. They clearly had faith that he could heal them. So they cried out. There were 10 of them, Lord, Master, have mercy on us. And he says, show yourself to the priests. And they were healed as they went. One came back, happened to be a Samaritan in the bunch. And Jesus said, hey, there were 10. Where are the other nine? Only, only this Samaritan came back to give thanks. And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Some, some versions say, your faith has made you whole. Anyway, I I just cannot see what this guy's seeing in this article. One came back with gratitude, but that's not, they'd already received their healing. 
The faith was when they cried out to Jesus for the healing. So they all exhibited faith. One came back and exhibited gratitude. And when Jesus said, and I don't know, again, don't, we can't, I don't want to read too much into the text, but I have heard it taught uh, by, by people I have a great deal of respect for. You know, leprosy had different effects on different people. There were different types of leprosy, but, you know, true leprosy uh, would cause people to lose, you know, noses, ears, fingers, things like that. Their, their, their bodies would, uh, pieces of their body would die. And so uh, there's a possibility, just reading the text, that all of them were healed of their leprosy, but the one who returned was restored. You know, some of the, the, the leprosy might have been driven out of their bodies, but they were still missing whatever they were missing. The one who came back to give thanks, Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Now, the, the, the thing that really boggled my mind here is when he said, uh, uh, he did not heal people in his hometown of Nazareth because they rejected him. That is not what the whole text of that story says. It says, well, in fact, let's look at it there first. He's talking about, uh, he quotes in Matthew 13, and it does say he did not. doesn't say why he did not. Oh, it kind of does. Matthew 13, this, Jesus had gone to his hometown. You know, this is, this are people, and the people didn't, you know, they're scratching his head saying, this can't be the prophet, this can't be the Messiah. We know this guy, we know where he comes from, we know his family, yada, yada, yada. And, uh. In verse 57, it says, so they were offended at him. This is Matthew 13, 57. They were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own house. Now he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. He did not do any works there because of their unbelief. Now it's not just it's not that they rejected him. So they didn't believe he could do these things. But... The same story is not contradicted. It's just we get some details filled in here. In Mark chapter 6, we get Mark's account of this, of this same thing. And he says uh, in verse 5, Now he could do, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching he did no mighty works there because he could do no mighty works there that's from the bible there's no way i know from the perspective of the of the the article that this guy's writing there's no way he's going to include that in there i don't know what he does when he gets to that verse but it flies in the face of everything they believe about sovereignty there's no way jesus couldn't if he didn't want to but he did want to he marveled at their unbelief, but he couldn't do any mighty work there because they did not believe. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. Therefore, they didn't believe he could do uh, what they wanted, ultimately wanted him to do. So Matthew says he didn't. Mark tells us why. He couldn't. Next paragraph. Furthermore, there are examples of godly men in both the Old and New Testaments who had, as far as we know, unhealed sicknesses. Or at least they were not healed in the miraculous way that many claim is God's will. Job was a man singled out by God as an exemplary, as exemplary and yet he went, underwent all sorts of afflictions, including illness. Elisha became sick with an illness that caused his death. Paul stopped at Galatia because he was sick, 
Timothy had frequent illnesses. Paul had to leave his companion Trophimus behind at Miletus on one of his journeys because he was ill. These show that godly believers should not expect their lives to be characterized by perfect health. To be sure, God may grant special healing to some of his children, but he is under no obligation and has not promised it to all of us this side of eternity. First of all, Job. Terrible example because Job was healed. Good night. (sighs) Completely restored. You start your paragraph by saying there were some who were sick and never healed. Job. Job was healed. That's how the story ends. It's, you know, I, I love pointing this out. The only New Testament reference to Job says, you have heard of Job and his outcome. We're supposed to look at how he ended up and he ended up healed. Elisha is worth thinking about because it does say he became sick with the sickness he was going to die. He died from it. He called, do you remember this? Maybe he has, because he has the king come over and shoot an arrow out the window. That signifies your, your victory over the Syrians. Here, take this handful of arrows and bang it on the ground. And so he does it three times. He said, ah, you should have banged it five or six times. Now you're only going to defeat him three times. And he dies. So I don't know how quickly after that conversation he dies. But here's the thing. Number one, Elisha was almost certainly well into his 80s at this point. We know he ministered for over 60 years. And that he was a young man when uh, he began to follow Elijah around. He'd fulfilled his ministry. He'd run his race. Now, do we have to succumb to sickness? I think ideally, no, we don't. You know, I, I think, man, the perfect way to go is just to sit down one day and say, Lord, is there anything else you want me to do? You know, when we are full of years. Yeah. Lord, is there anything else you need me to do here? No, you've done everything I've called you to do. Can I come home tonight? Yeah, you can. Go to sleep and go. That would be wonderful. But one way or another, we're all going to taste death, barring the return of Jesus Christ coming first. We're going to die some way. And depending on how broadly you define sickness, you know, if your heart stops, medical science would say, well, you you died of heart disease. How long do you have to suffer before that? I don't think it has to be this long. I don't get the impression that Elisha laid in this terminal condition for years and suffered. But I do think it's okay. I want to be careful about this. Because when you are satisfied with long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. That's a promise from God. That's a promise. Now, define long. Well, I just define it until you're satisfied. And if you're satisfied, I think it's okay. Like in Elisha's case, there's this sickness here. Let's just let this thing run its course because I'm done. I believe God's going to take me mercifully, quickly, painlessly. Anyway, let it run its course, I'm ready. Paul was sick when he stopped in Galatia. He said that. We read in Galatians not too long ago. It's because of physical infirmity that I first came to you. All right. But the author is supposed to be arguing that it's not always God's will to heal, but instead he just shows examples of people who got sick. Did Paul stay sick? No. If he stopped in Galatia because he was sick... But he stayed sick, he probably would have never left Galatia. But he did leave. He got on down the road, didn't he? He moved on. Paul told Timothy to take a little wine instead of just drinking water. Take a little wine. Some people believe he means mix a little wine with your water uh, for his frequent infirmities. 
All right, what's he saying there? He's not telling them, hey, you'll feel better if you get a buzz on every now and then. He's simply saying, you know, there's a medicinal property in this case. Make some changes to your diet, if you have to, to be a good steward of the health that God has blessed you with. All right? I don't know what Timothy's other eating habits were, but he's saying, you know, you'll feel better if you take a little wine uh, along with the water you drink uh, for your frequent infirmities, stomach ailments, whatever. All right? All right? if it, if it weren't uh, if it weren't god's will to heal why would it be okay for paul say hey you'll feel better if you do this it's kind of like the whole doctor thing if you really don't if you really believe god is absolutely in charge and he can heal if he wants why would you ever try to go to the doctor why can't you just trust god well if he wants to take me he'll take me if he wants to heal me he'll heal me you know i think doctors are great because they're working hand in hand with the revealed purpose of god all right but i always go to god first then I make the doctors come to my house. No, no, uh, reference to my leg. All right. Now, Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Oh, man, the cessationists love that one. Well, Paul, even Paul, who could do miracles at one point in his life, you could see that this gift of healing was fading away, even during the ministry of Paul, because his dear friend Trophimus, he had to leave sick in Miletus. We are sure Paul prayed for him, but God, for whatever reason, uh, wasn't healing, wasn't, chose not to heal Trophimus in this case. And we're, again, we're not saying that God can never heal, but the apostolic anointing for Paul to heal whoever he wanted to, who was clearly lifting. That's not what, good grief. You know what it says about him? That's it. That's all it says. Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Did he die in Miletus? Doesn't say that. The way I picture it, the way I've always pictured it is, look, I had to get going. I had places to be, and I w- rather than wait around and nurse Trophimus while I waited for his healing manifestation, I left him in the care of other believers, and he'll join me later. That's it. We don't need to read too much into it, right? So again, you give me an example of somebody who got sick, that doesn't mean God doesn't heal. We're not arguing that you are completely out of faith unless you are walking in 100%, 24-7 perfect health. And he's talking about resurrections. That's not a healing. A, he- a resurrection is a completely different kind of miracle. All right? Why not include walking on the water and everything else? And then he winds it up with that statement about he has, there's no obligation and no promise this side of heaven. Are you kidding me? When Jesus said, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He has an obligation to be the power behind that prayer. When he said, go, heal the sick. He didn't say, go and pray. And if it's somebody I've chosen to heal, I'll heal him. No, you go. You, it's, it's such a done deal. You heal the sick. To believers. If there are any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint him with oil. Him with oil and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Yeah. That, you tell me that's not a promise? Because it sure looks like one to me. Now, there is a question I can't answer. And I've been very upfront about that my whole ministry, as far as I can remember, preaching on this stuff. If it's God's will to heal, why doesn't everybody get healed? I don't know. I don't know. I know why some of them don't get healed, but I don't, why, don't know why all or most of them don't get healed. I've seen it not happen. So have you. Doesn't change God's words, though. I'm not going to alter my doctrine to fit my experience. All right? 
I'm just going to keep believing. I'm still going to keep saying and praying and speaking. And the, and the more consistent we are with our confession, the more we are going to see what we're praying for. I challenge you to find a verse in the New Testament that says anything other than that. I agree. There's instances of people getting sick. And there's instances where we don't specifically see them getting healed. Doctrinally, though, find me something in the New Testament that says we're supposed to. Now, this guy actually went on with it with a paragraph about Paul's thorn. I didn't tackle that tonight because we tackled that recently uh, when going through Corinthians. Uh, You can find that. Uh, I personally don't believe Paul's thorn was a sickness at all. I think scripture bears that out. But I'll wrap it up with this and I'll do it. I'll try to do it quickly because it's already 8.05. Praise and worship team come up here. All these answers, and I don't know if they're perfect answers. They satisfy me. I hope they help you. But towering above every one of these problems and responses is the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus Christ ultimately trumps everything because... As we have read uh, recently in Ephesians, as we will read again soon in Colossians, Jesus Christ was the express image of the Father. Jesus himself said this. You can almost read the exasperation in his voice when he's having one of his last conversations with his disciples. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What's he saying? Look at my beard and my eyebrows and my nose. This is what God the Father looks like. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you want to know how he communicates with people? Do you want to know how he uh, loves? Do you want to know how he judges? Do you want to know what he thinks about right and wrong? Do you know what he thinks about hypocrisy? Do you know what he thinks about sickness? Look at me. You want to know what God the Father thinks about sickness? Link, think back to the multitudes when I healed them all. Did Jesus have compassion and love for all the sick people? He did. Did all the sick people get healed? They didn't. Who did though? The ones who came to him for healing. Has nothing to do with the capriciousness or, or randomness of God's will. Well, so, you know, there were sick people in Jesus' day. Not everybody got healed. Everybody that came to Jesus got healed. Every one of them. Is it, God's, is it always God's will to save? And see, this is the thing. I have a feeling this, this article is written by a Calvinist who would say it's not. God wills to save some, and he wills, again, in the mysterious counsel of his inscrutable will, he wills that some go to hell. I don't see that in the Bible. I see that God is not willing that any should perish. That that's why, you know, here, you know, Peter writing about that, saying that, I know you're impatient. I know you want Jesus to come back. But think about this. The longer he waits, the more people can get saved because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come into everlasting life. Well, if God wills that, why doesn't he save everybody? In a sense, he did. What Jesus did at the cross was enough for the salvation of everybody. Stand up with me. Who gets saved? Those who come to the cross. His healing power is enough for the healing of everybody. Who gets saved? Those who come to him believing he can, will, and desires to heal. Those who get saved, get saved because they know that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that includes them. 
God's not going to force salvation on anybody. He's not going to force healing on anybody. He might make it available to people that you wonder how they weren't seeking him. And he can do that. The question is, will God, if you come to God, come to Christ and say, save me. I acknowledge you as Lord. I believe that Jesus, that God raised you from the dead. Does Jesus have an obligation to answer that prayer in the affirmative? Yes. Yes. He absolutely will save those who call on him for salvation. You will not see God saying, sorry, you're not on my list. I did not predestine you for salvation. So really quick, I'm going to do this quickly. This, this, it doesn't have to last long for it to be powerful. I believe God is in this. I'm going to give a two-pronged altar call. One, if you've never, and this is the most important one, if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, you have never come before him and prayed that thing that I just prayed. I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't keep your law. I try to do good, but I'm not perfect. You are. Where's the righteousness we need come from? It comes from Jesus Christ himself. That's what he died for. He said, I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to suffer the punishment for it. You're going to be righteous in God's eyes because you're going to be in me. When God looks at you, he's going to see me. God can see you righteous. You want to be righteous like that? You want to be saved? Come up here and let me pray with you the second we start singing. If, you, if you're coming up for salvation, you come right up here to the pulpit. Everybody else, I just preached a message on healing. There's no way I'm not going to pray for the sick. So if there's sickness in your body, something you're fighting, come up here. But you come up here believing God has healed you, that it is yours, that God absolutely is, is obligated, but not because we obligate him, because he's obligated himself with his word, to answer the healing prayer. We're simply obeying him, praying, laying out of hands, trusting, believing. I'm just going to say, receive your healing. I'm going to link up my faith with yours. Doesn't matter whether you feel lightning bolts coming through my fingers or not. Maybe you will. But I believe you're going to be touched by God. I believe you're going to experience a manifest healing in your body. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for revealing your will to us concerning this super important subject. But thank you, Lord, that the payment for that healing was made the finished work of Jesus Christ, those stripes on his back that were specifically laid on him to purchase our healing, all in the process of bearing our sin, carrying it to the cross, leaving it nailed there, and rising in glorious victory over death, over sickness, over poverty. Thank you, Lord, for the victory we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your healing. If there's anybody in here, Lord, who needs to receive that healing, needs to receive that salvation convict them not just of their need but give them the confidence to know that it is theirs in jesus name amen god bless you as you come thanks for listening we hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with christ make sure to follow us on facebook or instagram to stay updated with what's going on at living word family church have a great day